Open to the book of Jude real quick. I understand that uh, this time may be just a tad bit shorter, but I want to share with you some things from the book of Jude. By the way, uh, Pastor Rod Aguilar, one of our overseers, my pastor, uh, sent me a book recently by Bob Sorge under the title of Loyalty. I was able to read this book cover to cover on all those hours on an airplane. And uh, after I got done reading, in fact, I marked it all up. My wife will attest to the fact that I'm not really a bookmarker per se. Uh, but in this one, I just went crazy. I marked this book all up. Probably hadn't done that in years. And it is probably one of the best books ever. I have read a Dag Heward Mills books on loyalty, and those are good books as well. But, but this one has just a good, a good tenor a good a, a balance and an overview that was incredibly powerful. And uh, it deals, it talks about, you know, in last days, you know, the Bible tells us that there'll be truce breakers or covenant breakers. And people have often wondered what that means. And, and it means really that they'll, that they'll be disloyalty. There'll be a, 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 just an immense uh, happening that people will no longer be loyal. They'll no longer be loyal to their word. They'll no longer be loyal uh, to friends and to family, or whatever the case may be. And at the same time, when something like that were to happen, at the same time, there's always, there's always a lifting up of that same value or virtue. And so I believe that God is calling his people first to be loyal to him. And, and of course, there needs to be loyalty, obviously, within the life of the church as well. But, but the book has to deal with restoring these things, and it was just powerful. It encouraged me a lot of the way because, you know, a lot of this we've been instructing and teaching and sharing. Uh, it affirmed many of you. I, I appreciate you and your loyalties to God and, and to this local ministry. Uh, you always know you got a good book where there's several paragraphs that are hitting you between the eyes. You know, and, and unless you're hit a couple times or two, you aren't under the anointing. You know that, right? I mean, you got, you got to be peppered a few times and then you know the anointing has showed up. And, and so that happened as well. And, and probably it needs to be disseminated to, uh, to help teach other people as well. And it, and it kind of gave me the uh, springboard through the theme which we finally run up to today uh, in the book of Jude. And may I also say, before you go run out and buy it, although it's worthy of a purchase, uh, I'm going to end up getting these for our leadership and probably those that participate in the plugged-in meetings. I'll probably get that book for you as well so I can save you 10 bucks. If you're patient, if you're not patient, then go spend it and enjoy it. But, uh, but if you're a little patient, I'll probably get it to some of you. Um, but today in Jude's, Jude's uh, writing his letter, his postcard, uh, we're in verse 5, and I want to read through verse 11. And this morning I entitled my message, When Doctrine is Dismissed. When Doctrine is Dismissed. Let me read the text here in Jude, beginning with verse 5. And then we'll get into what we want to visit just a few moments this morning. It says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for judgment of the great day. Now, Jude, in just a moment, is going to begin to talk about some issues of authority. And he uses what goes on in the heavenly realm concerning angels on a couple of occasions. On this occasion, he said that they did not keep their proper 
domain, but left their own abode. And if you hang around us long enough, you will hear us teach the concepts when it comes to authority of jurisdiction. You know, when you're in authority, it doesn't mean you're in authority over everything. See, that's the government's problem right now. The government thinks it has authority over everything. The government thinks it's God. See, God has authority over all. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. But there are actually jurisdictional areas of authority. And uh, so authority is jurisdictional. And when you step out of certain jurisdictions, you're out of order and you're out of the will of God. And so he's just using the angels here as an example by saying they, they stepped over a jurisdictional boundary that they had no authority in. All right? They just they had no business being in this particular realm. It says in verse 7, "...is Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire." Uh, that's a, that's a, a fairly significant judgment for stepping outside your boundaries. Verse 8, "...likewise..." Now he's getting on to those that he brought up in the earlier verses we mentioned last week. "...likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh..." reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they've gone in the way of Cain, They've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And I want to talk just a moment or two what I entitled again, When Doctrine is Dismissed. Now, as you recall, if you were here last week, if not, you can go to iTunes Catch Up this afternoon if you want. But we learned last week about the critical nature of what you are saying if all you have is a short postcard to say it. You can't waste time. You can't waste your papyrus. You can't waste ink. And Jude says here in this little postcard that there are teachers and there are people who have crept into the church and they have corrupted, as we talked about last week, the grace of God. It's interesting that Peter later would pick up on this. He would write about this group as well. And he literally says that they preach liberty, but even though they preach liberty, it produces bondage. He says they themselves are bound. Now, there are many people that want freedom, but their freedom is really anarchy. You understand there's a difference between liberty and anarchy. There's a difference between the freedom Jesus brings and the anarchy the enemy promises. You can have freedom. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to listen to anybody. You don't have to listen to God. And you can call yourself free. But what ultimately happens is you find yourself bound. Are you following me? The people who are yelling freedom sometimes the loudest. I'm free. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. They're the ones that are the most bound. Whereas when you come to Jesus, the scripture says, he whom the son has set free is free indeed. And many who are in anarchy look at that freedom and say to themselves, oh, you guys are bound. You're bound all that religious silliness and stuff. But we need to understand that he sets us free for wholeness and abundance and possibility and a future. And if I'm bound, the only thing I'm bound to is the will of God that ultimately wants the best for me. 
But these teachers have crept into the church, preaching on grace, declaring to people they can be free, but their freedom has turned lewd and licentious. Basically, they're saying you can do whatever you want to do, and it's literally leaving the people still bound. Now, the question is this, as we begin to read and just make application to our lives. The question is this. Do you, now this is rhetorical, so you don't have to raise your hand. All right, don't raise your hand. Don't, just to yourself. Do you really want to walk under an open heaven? Do you really want God's best? Not what you think's best. Come on, can, can we just, can we just have enough humility to admit, especially those of us that are a little bit older, that there are some things we thought at the time years ago was what we really wanted. And then when we got it, we found out, why did I want that? But we really wanted it at the time, didn't we? Are we, are we humble enough to admit that that has happened probably? I, I wanted what I wanted, and then I get it, and I say to myself, why did I really want this? So listen to me. So, so do you really want the will of God? Because in the will of God, he has what's best for you. You may want what you want thinking it's the best, but there are probably folks, and I'm not picking on anyone except to say that it could be five years from now, the thing that you're wanting the most at this moment, five years from now, you'll look back and say, what was I thinking? So do you really want God's best for your life? Do you want his favor? Do you want divine opportunity? Do you want open doors? See, I'm just setting you up because, I mean, I can hear, yes, yes. Do you want miraculous, providential, divine appointments? Do you want a destiny that's good? Then listen, here's the key. You're going to have to embrace his ways. Listen, you have to embrace his ways. And there's a little caveat. I put it in parentheses in my notes. And you must want it joyfully, willingly, and quickly. Everyone say joyfully. Willingly. Quickly. See, that's that. Quickly. You know how you look at your children and they'll do what you tell them to do, but they aren't doing it joyfully. They really aren't doing it willfully. And they sure ain't doing it quickly. And you know what that counts for? Come on now. It works the same way with the Lord. God loves happy, voluntary, swift obedience. Now, that's where this doctrine issue comes in. And that's what we heard last week were to contend for. But unfortunately, something happens when we demean or we dismiss sound doctrine. You see, what happens? That's what Jude begins to illustrate here. He says, when you're not going to listen to what the truth you've been taught and what we're contending for, when you're going to allow yourself to be turned by those who preach this grace that's really not grace, but it's leading you into destruction and you dismiss or devalue sound doctrine, what is it that will begin to happen in your life? And he begins to illustrate these things. Now, our, our current culture, unfortunately, especially church culture, 
has an attitude of what's the big deal about doctrine? Oh, don't, don't, please, pastor. Doctrine, doctrine is boring. Gets in the way. I've heard people say this. Don't, don't get people tied up in doctrine. It'll get in the way of their relationship with Jesus. We're not about doctrine. We're just about Jesus here. It's uninteresting. There's no relevancy to it. It just makes me yawn. I know I could care less whether original sin was sublapsarian or superlapsarian. I don't give a rip. And if that's what was being taught today, I wouldn't give a rip either. But you need to understand that doctrine isn't just big words and big terms. There, there, there are some things that are at stake that will either lead you to that which is good and in God or that which will ultimately lead to your death and destruction. So Jude begins to illustrate just how relevant this is. And since the word in their lives isn't the standard, you got to understand because if they were listening to apostolic authority, there wouldn't be this problem. But they're not listening to apostolic counsel or word. It's not the standard. So this is what he says begins to happen in these people's lives. He says, because you're not listening, it says here in verse 8, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh. So what happens is, is that dreams begin to trump doctrine. You might want to write that down. Dreams begin to trump doctrine. Now, this is really great for our circles, churches that are like ours, circles like ours, because there are some people who believe that God told me trumps what God has said in his word. God told me. God told me to get divorced. God told me, God told me, but basically God told me I could violate this because God told me. I got a vision. I got a dream. Now listen to me very, very carefully because we are what we call full gospel, charismatic. I believe the Holy Spirit's in operation today. I believe, listen to me now, I believe God speaks. I believe he can speak prophetically. I can, I believe that all of these ways he can speak to us. Uh, he can give us visions. He can give us dreams. Certainly he can do these things. They are valid ways that God speaks to us. But listen, these ways are subjective ways, and the subjective is tied to Scripture. In other words, if we believe God has spoken his word, then his, his current prophetic voice will never contradict his established voice. No, it won't. See, these subjective voices, Moments are, are valid and sometimes they're illuminating, but they don't violate or contradict what he has said in his word. But what happens is, is you have people who decide, I'm not listening to apostolic authority. I'm not listening to the word as it was being established. And what happens is, is because God told me this, it trumps anything else that's coming my direction. And so Jude begins to use this unusual story about Michael the archangel and Satan fighting over the body of Moses. Isn't that kind of a wild story there? Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you this real quickly, but apparently some of you know this already, that you know Moses, because of his outburst of wrath and his anger at Mirabah, where the people were to receive water, and he got mad because he was just angry with what was going on, God had told him to speak to the rock in order for the water to come forth. But instead of speaking to the rock, he slapped the rock. He took a rod and he slapped it. I'm not preaching this morning on why he would have done that, except to say that he didn't do what God had asked him to do in that regard, slapping the rock. Our joke is oftentimes when we're aggravated, don't slap a rock. Don't slap the rock. 
Because what ultimately happened to Moses was because he slapped the rock. Now, this is really interesting. Because as you will recall, Moses earlier in his life had killed an Egyptian in order to save a Hebrew from being unrighteously uh, flogged. So he killed an an Egyptian. Now, this is interesting. You would have thought murder would have kept Moses out of the promised land, but murdering somebody didn't keep him out. But slapping the rock at Mirabah kept him out of the promised land. Isn't that remarkable? Can I just share something with you? Just kind of hit me like this. Sometimes how we evaluate sin is not the way God evaluates sin. I mean, in our mind, we'd say, wow, murder is a lot worse than slapping a rock. I mean, for crying out loud, he just took a stick and hit a rock. I mean, that's not even in the same arena as murder. It's, it, listen, God does not evaluate your sin the way oftentimes you think he is. Sometimes, some of you have great testimonies of how God has pulled you out of an incredible past. You have things you've done in your past that, that if it weren't for your testimony, you wouldn't even want to speak about it. Just, just despicable, crazy things that you've done in your past. And, and to be honest with you, if we could find a sin scale... And, and we put that up to the sin scale, some of you would just, you'd acknowledge it. Some of your sins were pretty egregious. And, but now you're walking with the Lord, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're confronted with something that's not nearly as bad as that was. But hear me now, you're now in a different place than you were. You are in a place of, of lostness here, and maybe God has raised you up in a place of leadership here. And the standard on your life is no longer whether or not you do these old egregious things, but now the standard is whether or not you can control your mouth. And so what happens is, is that while you weren't disqualified from a promise because of that, now all of a sudden you just can't, you can't exercise restraint on this very little thing and it causes you to be cut off from the destiny God may have for you. Now, That's just a little side note. That wasn't even in my notes. But this is the story. So Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. And so we have no record of it exactly, except that we know that he dies. And we know that his body is not allowed to be found by the Israelites. Because how many of you know, if the Israelites would have found Moses' body, they would have buried it, built a monument, and they'd worshiped it. They just sat there and remembered the good old days of Moses. Well, God knew that. That's why I think he just didn't even let them. We don't even know where the body of Moses went to. But what we do know, I believe, out of this verse is that whatever moment Moses died, I believe angels or the Lord commissioned angels to come and to carry him away. Now, obviously, what's happening here is uh, there's some, some sort of tug-of-war match that's going on with the enemy. Now, I can't answer all the questions as to how Moses' body got in between Michael the archangel and Satan in this tug-of-war match. I'm sure there's probably books written on this subject. I don't have an answer to it. It's just this tug-of-war that's going on. But the point that is being made here is that even in this situation, this is such an interesting thing, Michael is contending with the devil. And even in the midst of of contending with an adversary. The point of the story is this. There, Michael, Michael didn't say, loose him, slewfoot. You know, sometimes whenever we do spiritual warfare, I'm, a, I'm afraid we, we probably do it wrong. 
I, I believe I have authority over the enemy. How do I want, I want to say this appropriately? I, I respect him, though. What I mean by respect is this. If you don't think you're dealing with a powerful entity, you're a fool. You're a fool. And literally, Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. There was, there was a decorum. There was, a, there was like a protocol. It almost seems odd when you read it because it's as if he's the devil. He doesn't deserve any respect. He doesn't deserve anything like that. It's not, it, it, but that's exactly the point that he, he's using a radical illustration to underscore a very important point. That angels, angels understand the importance of functioning according to precept. Just because they think it doesn't apply doesn't mean they can jump out of it. And that's exactly what was going on here. He's using this as an illustration. And, and, and so what were they manifesting out of all this as he illustrates it with this unusual story? Well, back in verse 8, it says that there were three things that were going on. Number one is they were defiling themselves. It says they were defiling the flesh. I, I believe that means they were not only defiling themselves, but they were defiling others. Their inability to yield and to submit uh, to apostolic input which we would understand that to be scriptural input, to have authority speaking into your life, they were defiling themselves and others. Literally, it was ruining their spirits and others who could be influenced by them. It was defiling of the flesh. Now, don't listen to sound doctrine. Don't listen to those precepts. What you've been taught is all gone. We, come on, God, God will speak to you. He will give you a dream. You will begin to hear for, for yourself and only for yourself. And, and what happens is when people enter into that, it, it is a type of religious deception. What happens is sometimes they end up in places that they do. They are defiling the flesh. They're living unrighteous lives. It, it, it's not even close to what God asks of us. Oftentimes people will say, well, you know, I'm not under the law. Can I share this with you? I'm not under the law either anymore. I'm not under it. It's been written now on my heart. Because now that I'm his, I want to do things that I know please him. See? But, you see, apparently God's telling them something different. And they're defiling themselves and other people as well. Number two, they reject authority. I don't have to do anything to conform to anything except what I hear from God on my own. It's probably the greatest blight in America today. Is that we've, we've, turned, we've turned liberty into a sort of spiritual libertarianism. To where now we don't have any, I don't need anybody's input. We are, we are an island unto ourselves. We're a church unto ourselves. I don't have to listen to anybody. It's just me and God. And, and it's just, that's, and I'm just telling you, that's not Bible. It's just not Bible. There were many times God dealt with individuals, true. But there were numerous times God dealt with his people under authority to move in his will to do greater exploits. So they rejected authority. And then finally, it says number three, they spoke evil of dignitaries. Now, I thought that was interesting there. Spoke evil of dignitaries. That's what sound doctrine begins, the rejection of sound doctrine begins to do in people's lives. They spoke evil of dignitaries. Dignitaries, interesting, is translated glorious ones. It might be better understood if I could put it this way. Dignitaries are those who probably carry an authority or carry a glory or carry an anointing 
in order to do whatever it is they've been called to do. Now, dignitaries, I do believe, not only concern those who function in the ministry, but dignitaries would concern all of those that function even in civil government and would conclude probably employers and other people in our life that would come to us as authorities. Because according to Romans 13, 1, God has established all authority. So that means he's divinely appointed it. And so in all likelihood, though, Jude's probably thinking of apostolic authority here. And he says that they're speaking evil or they're blaspheming. Blasphemos is the word, which means slander or accusation. They were making false statements, unsubstantiated accusations. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but there are occasions that pastors, leaders, get sloshed with false accusations. Does that surprise you? Not everything. Let me, I'll just share this with you. I, I've learned this because I've been in just enough of the, of the fishbowl to have learned this, that just because it's in print... And just because somebody said it doesn't always make it so. I've just learned that through the years. I've always just, you know, it may, it may for a moment tantalize a thought if I hear something. But I always just kind of, because I just know things that have gone on in my own life. That just because someone says it doesn't mean it's so. I, I, through the years, I've been criticized and, and, and I've been accused. I've been accused of embezzlement before. And I, I've looked and said, then, then audit it. And then all of a sudden it goes away. But that's out there. I mean, right now, you know pastors that have whole websites created against them. People have whole websites created against uh, slandering and accusing. And that's what he says is going on here. Now, it's interesting. Listen, we have have sound doctrine. We choose not to accept sound doctrine. And we begin to move away until finally, he says, it enters into these particular areas. And interestingly enough, he pronounces a woe. Now, I want to say this. I guess I'm thinking about it, so I'll stop here and say it. As I was reading these passages in Jude, I thought, wow, these are incredibly depressing things to talk about. I'd much rather hear about how I can take five easy steps and get to my prosperity or how God wants to to bless me or help me. But you know what? Every now and then, and apparently it was going on there, that in a postcard, Jude had to send it out to him and say, listen, there, there comes a time we've got to stop where we're at and say, amend or change, don't fall into this, don't do this, because if we don't say stop, you're going to end up going off the cliff. You know, when someone's driving off the cliff and, and, they're, and they're shooting by you in a high-speed automobile ready to go off the end of the cliff, you can't be sitting there going, God wants to bless you. See ya. You have to go, What Stop. Put the brake on. Now that we got the brake on, now we can talk about the blessing. And that's literally what he's doing here. He's trying to get the brake on in order to say you don't, want, you don't want to follow in these patterns. So Jude pronounces a woe here in verse 11. Woe to them. Now that's not like saying woe to a horse. Well, maybe it is a lot. Maybe saying stop, woe. But in biblical terms, it meant something a little bit different. It was a funeral term. And in those days, when funerals were done, they would actually pay people to, uh, to grieve and to lament for the dead. If there wasn't enough lamentors, you could buy a, a chorus of lamentors. And, and literally, they would go through the streets. And as they would have their procession in the streets, this was, this was a fairly regular practice in Jewish circles. As they would go through the streets, 
the people would cry out, literally, whoa. Now, I know what we understand whoa to mean. It's like we, we know there's something that's going to, you know, when Jesus said whoa, we knew he was about ready to hit somebody up the side of the head with something he was going to say. So that's how we've, we've come to understand that that way. But you've got to understand how it was originally used. They would cry out, oh, whoa. And they'd do the whoa. And they just they'd call out these woes. Whoa. Now, I understand you, you already have a thought as to what a woe means. And, and partially that's true. But literally what it means is, is when a woe is given, whether Jesus was giving it or Jude's giving it or anyone else is giving a woe in the scripture, it's really a picture of the one communicating, literally going before them, crying out woe, and it's really almost a prophetic picture, maybe even a practical picture of saying, you're dead. What you're doing is dead. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, woe, and he goes into it by saying, you are whitewashed sepulchers, full of dead men's bones. That's why he said these words. He's literally calling out the funeral word, saying, saying there's death in the air. And he pronounces these woes. And, and literally Jude is saying, woe to your promises. Woe to your blessing. Woe, woe to your destiny. Woe to your open doors. Woe to your open heaven. That's why I asked you at the beginning of this word, is this what you really want? But Jude says, if you, if you neglect sound doctrine, if you neglect the voices of apostolic authority moving in your life and speaking to your life, woe to your future. Woe to possibility. Woe to what God's will was for you. Whoa, that's what he's crying out. Whoa. Do you understand how that probably, there, there, that tears would come to your eye if you were Jude? I'm just going to take the step. Do you know how often? That's why Jesus, when he looked at Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, if you had only known what could have been with tears from his eyes. There are moments, and, and I guess because of the years, you, you develop sort of a safety mechanism in your heart, even as a pastor. But there have been those moments, and, and, and those of you that have been with me any while know it's not often, but there are moments you'll watch pastors' eyes fill up with tears. And there'll be a moment that I'll just break, and you'll start seeing tears. And people will sometimes wonder what I'm crying about, and you know, I know there's tears for all different things. There's tears for joy and there's tears for sorrow. And I mean, there's tears for all kinds of things. But if you could only know for just a moment, get a glimpse of looking out across a congregation just like this and seeing faces that you really do love and you really do care about and you really want the best for and you really want to see open doors and you really want to see a bright future and you really want them to have their destiny and you want them to walk in favor and you see all of these things but their ears are shut off and their heart is hardened. And they're living their life, not listening to their input. And, and suddenly it's just like, whoa. And the tears come and say, you do, your future is dying and you don't see it. That's not hard. That's compassion. Just compassion. He gives just three quick woes and I'm done. He says, this is what's going to happen. You'll either go three things in the way of Cain, 
run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit or perish in the rebellion of Korah. I cannot, I do not have enough time to go into all of these stories except to say this to you, that the way of Cain, the repercussion, as you recall, Cain killed his brother because Cain refused to be completely obedient. And because he refused complete obedience, he got angry, killed his brother. The blood of Abel spoke from the ground to where God knew what had happened. And Cain was driven from the presence of God. He says, this is the repercussion. If you don't think doctrine's important, I will quickly change your mind. If we don't embrace the precepts and the ways of God, it literally will drive us from his very presence. That's what he says. They entered into the way of Cain. They're driven from the presence of God. Secondly, says that they'll fall into the heir of Balaam. The heir of Balaam was that he was a prophet and, and Balak the king was trying to bribe him into prophesying against Israel. He wanted to buy his gift. And Balaam sort of toyed around with the idea. And God, on a couple different occasions, uh, stopped him or circumvented him from uh, using his gift in unrighteous ways or against the ways of God. And what happens is, is that I just wrote down here is that God, what, what he does is he ultimately, the very God that wants to assist you in bringing you into his will and his promises, you end up fighting God himself. Until finally, Balaam was known, if you'll read the book of the Revelation, Balaam is known as a great heir. You know, part of Balaam's problem was when, when God only gave him an inch, he took a mile. I, I'm telling you, we, we got to understand, God forgave all these egregious sins, but for some of us right now, God's talking to us not about staying out of bars, not about not sleeping around, not about, you know, staying out of perversion and drunkenness and all these other things. God's talking to some of us about when you're going to start doing what you've been simply asked to do. You, instead of taking a mile, you, you, just, you just do what you've been asked to do. God's, God's dealing with us with our mouths. He's dealing with us with our attitudes. He's dealing with us in our motives. He's dealing with us in really, really simple things. But these simple things are becoming the issues that will or will not open the doors to your destiny. See, that's the amazing thing. We think if I can just keep from sleeping around, I'll be good. Well, that would be good. But some of you for 30 years thought that was the only issue. And maybe now the issue is, can you be happy? Can you be on time? Can you be on target? Can you, can you do the things, the small things? You, you say, well, you're telling me that this is a sin. It's a sin to you. It's as much a sin as slapping a darn rock. What's, what's slapping a rock? Doesn't seem like much to me. I understand. I understand. Obedience, whenever God's asking you for certain obedience, it never seems like much if you don't want to do it. And so we justify it by saying, well, there's worse things other people do than me. That's not the issue. There's always worse things than you. God ain't dealing just with the worse things than you. He's dealing with you. And that was Balaam's problem. Balaam's problem was he was this charismatic, gifted individual. And when God, God had given him an inch and he'd take a mile, he was also the one that always wanted forgiveness instead of permission. I got to get off Balaam right now. I can tell this is blessing everybody. You know what? Forg I'm going to do it. And, and if I get caught at it, I'll just ask forgiveness. No, you just sinned. You need to repent. 
I'll leave that one go. I'll just leave it go. Amen. Era of Balaam, and then finally the rebellion of Korah. Korah was the one that was dissatisfied that he wasn't where Moses was. And so he started a rebellion. It was amongst the leaders in this particular instance. He just started a bit rebellion. And uh, Moses, interestingly, went before the Lord and just took it before the Lord. He didn't try to defend himself, didn't even try to deal with it, just took it before the Lord. The Lord said, I'll, I'll take care of it. <laughs> the Lord did. Had a giant earthquake. Swallowed 250 of them right there. <laughs> I guess if you're Moses, you'd say, well, I guess that dealt with that, didn't it? I guess we don't have to have a meeting on that one. But the point he's making here is this, as he's sharing this. He's saying the earth, the earth, they, they're going away that the very earth. Now, you may not fall into an earthquake. Don't misunderstand. There may, there may not be an earthquake that you get swallowed up by. But you know what? You can be swallowed up into obscurity. You can be swallowed up into irrelevance. You, you had possibility and a future and a destiny, and all of a sudden you're swallowed up into oblivion. Well, where's Korah? I don't know. Here one moment and gone the next. See, that's, that's, why, that's why we spend time on doctrine. It's not just to be a downer. It's to keep us on target. It's, it's, it's not just to use big terms. It's to keep us on target. And granted, I would much have rather gone to another place in another book on a Sunday morning, but I just am convinced that we've got to get the whole counsel of God and we're just going to serve it up as we come to it. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that in Jude, this is what he says. Go back to Jude real quick. You're going to give me just an extra minute or two, right? Now, listen to this. Verse 16, he says this. He says, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts and and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved. Can I ask you something? Are you a beloved? But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there'd be mockers in the last time who'd walk according to their own ungodly lust, sensual persons who cause division and not having the spirit. Here's the good news. The good news is, number one, he says, beloved, beloved, remember. This is, this is not you. Remember. And, and here's the good news. The good news is next week, this is what I love, is that next week, praise God, we get to end on a high note. He says, because I'm going to tell you how to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. I'm going to get a hold of the ones, not the ones that are looking for the lowest common denominator. They aren't going to hear. They aren't going to listen. They're, they're twisting everything to their own advantage. You know what? Maybe there's nothing we can do with those but you, beloved. Oh, but you, beloved. We can sow into you how to build yourself up into something that God can use. Aren't you glad we can end on that note? Please be here next week so we can end on that note. Will you stand with me?